Well, I love it when I'm in the middle of preaching a sermon series and I see something that fits perfectly. And I think, oh, that'll just be great. And so there's this uh, news article. It's a new report that was released in a joint study by several evangelical denominations. And it confirmed that the habitual sin that everybody else struggles with is actually much worse than your own. This will be good news to a lot of us. The study found that your sin is regrettable, but it's not that bad. While everybody else's sin is horrible, disgusting, and should be repented of immediately. In fact, there's even a chart that helps us see this in a graphic representation of the relative badness of sin. So on the short side, in the green bar, that's the sins you struggle with. And the red bar is the sins that everybody else struggles with. And there's comments, you know, the, our sin is really not that bad. I don't know if you can see this because it's kind of small. But the sins that other people do- struggle with, whoa, Nelly, that sin is bad. Those other people better start repenting. The vast majority of sin that your Christian brothers and sisters struggle with is awful, the report said, while the overwhelming majority of the sin that you habitually commit is, in fact, pretty minor. The study analysts further confirmed that you shouldn't even bother trying to rid yourself of your own minor sins, while you should constantly call other people out for their horrifying sins. Judge them early, judge them often, they wrote in the report. They should be thankful that God put someone as holy as you on this earth to point out their totally depraved sins. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Little tongue-in-cheek there. That's from the Babylon Bee. If you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, it's a satirical news uh, source. It's totally made up. That's not real. Don't post that. Don't tweet that. Don't. It's not legit. But it does fit our sermon series beautifully, perfectly, because we're talking today about self-righteous religion. We're in the middle of a sermon series titled Self-Less, where we are looking at the self the false self, the flesh, the ego, and how we can move that aside. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. As our self gets pushed to the side, there's more room for God to work in our lives and through our lives. So if you missed last week, please go back and listen or watch. Uh, You can go to our Facebook page and watch the sermon there. You can go to our website, linwoodchurch.org, hit the media tab, listen to the sermon there. If you're on iTunes, you can subscribe. If you missed that one, it really laid a foundation for where we're going. And the whole series is sort of progressive. The first three weeks, we'll be talking more about the negative side of the flesh or the ego and how we deal with that and the pitfalls that it brings into our eye into our lives. The second three weeks, the last three weeks of the series, we'll be talking more and more about what selfless living looks like and how do we get there and how do we become tools in God's hand. So today we are talking about self-righteous religion. We're talking about the difference maybe between a religion that is focused on forms and doing certain things in order to please God and a relationship with Jesus Christ that is founded on the basis of his loving sacrifice for us and his invitation to learn to live the way that he lived, to walk as he walks. Discipleship, simply defined, is learning to live as Jesus would if he were me. So if he lived in your house with your family, had your job, what would Jesus do? That's discipleship. And it's not going to be what yourself, your flesh, your ego wants nine times out of ten. So we're learning that together. 
And this is a very common theme in Scripture, the difference between going through the motions and actually being moved by the Holy Spirit into a life of love and hope and peace and grace that flows through you to the world around you. In fact, it's one of the central themes of Jesus' central Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' central teachings. What we read in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount was probably not one sermon, which you can read through it and get through it in about 18 minutes, and you think, that's just right. No wonder he was such a popular preacher. He only spoke for 18 minutes. He boom, 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 give them what they need and send them on their way. No. We're told in Scripture that he would preach for hours, he would preach all day or for multiple days in a row, and these were the subjects and the concepts that he was proclaiming, and each Each concept that we see in the Sermon on the Mount expands into a whole message or a whole series of messages. And in his central central teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, we see him talking about not falling into the trap of self, of self-centeredness, of self-righteousness, of uh, self-aggrandizement, making ourselves the center of the universe. And so what we're looking at today and talking about self-righteousness is is something that he had to address, and he had to address it often because it pops up many times in the Gospels, this idea that when I do good things for God, that somehow makes me righteous or more righteous than somebody who doesn't do those things, and that replaces Christ's finished work on the cross with our attempts at righteousness. And so then, you know, the pendulum swings to the other side, and you say, you know, Paul addresses this in his letters, sin I will, sin I must. I'll just sin that grace may abound. He said, absolutely not. That's moving to error in the other side. And I love the way Dallas Willard says this with characteristic uh, profundity. He says, spiritual exercises are wisdom, not righteousness. Spiritual exercises, reading the Bible, praying, serving, participating in worship, participating in fellowship, all of these spiritual exercises, these represent wisdom. We are wise when we do them. They are not righteousness. We are not more righteous because we do these things, but we are wiser, and our spirit can grow and be nourished by these exercises. Just like if I go to the gym every day for an hour or two, my body will become stronger as I exercise it, as we participate in spiritual exercises, our spirits become stronger and our faith grows and becomes stronger. And so we're talking about a response to God's grace rather than a means of obtaining his favor. Does that make sense? Our spiritual exercises are best viewed in a way of growing in that grace, in a way of strengthening that grace as a response to that grace rather than a means of obtaining righteousness. It's an internal growth versus an external performance. And we see this starting out early in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there on page 1502. We'll start with this verse and then we'll move on to a section where he addresses this maybe a little bit more in detail later in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew 5.20, he's in the middle of shifting paradigms. He's just finished the Beatitudes. He said, you know, the people that you think are blessed and have it all together aren't necessarily the ones that are actually blessed and recipients of God's favor. And so he's shifting paradigms. Then he goes in and says, "You're you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're what brings out the best, and you're what shines God's light. You're mirrors for God to introduce his light into the world around you. And then he moves 
moves on to another section, uh, verses 17 through 20, where he's talking about the law and the righteousness of God. And he's saying, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. And then verse 20, he nails it on the head and he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And they had to be like, whoa, did he really just say that? Because in this day and in this time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were considered the most righteous. They were the ones that got it all right. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible. They had memorized all the 600 plus regulations and, and, and things that God had spoken to in the Old Testament about the order of worship and the ritual cleanliness and everything else. They were supposed to be the most righteous. And he's saying, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so there must be something more to righteousness than the exterior presentation of it. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount lays that out. But we have to understand at the very beginning of this message that there is a true righteousness which equates to our right standing with God. That is true righteousness. That is the righteousness that Jesus is speaking about. It's where we have right standing with God. And throughout the Old Testament, it'll say that the just or the righteous walk by faith. They were those that interacted with God on the basis of their faith. And in the New Testament, our righteousness is Christ's righteousness placed on us. Not the things that we do, not the list of things that we do. We do those because he has granted us right standing with God. We do those as a response to his divine favor, not as a way to earn it. Because he's talking about the difference between external righteousness, which the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had gotten really, really good at, and internal righteousness, internal right standing with God, which only comes through Christ. When he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about no one comes into right standing with the Father except through me. And the rest of Matthew 5, from this point on, verse 21 through 48, is all about the difference between external righteousness, I hate somebody so I don't kill them, and I'm right, I have right standing with God. And he says, no, 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 get rid of hatred altogether, that's the internal righteousness. Or I'm attracted to somebody, or I lust after somebody, and so as long as I don't commit adultery, I'm right with God. And he said, no, 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 get rid of lust, get rid of these things completely. So he's talking about external versus internal, and he's making it very, very clear that it's not just the external that needs to be in the right place. It's the internal. And this is why we need Christ. This is why we need grace. Because he moves inside. And he says, it doesn't matter what things look like from the street. I want to go in the back room and see what's hanging out in there. And let's shine the light on it. Let's clean it out. Let's make it all right. Inside and out. That's why we sang the song that we just sang. Because the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were perfect examples of the external appearance of righteousness, but internally they were filled with anger and hatred and lust and pride and dishonesty. And so what looked really, really good from the outside was just empty and filthy and dirty on the inside. And as we were talking about this as a staff, the perfect image came to mind 
of this. And so I want to share a little clip with you. Some of you will recognize this. Some of you have been more spiritual for longer, and you'll have no idea what this is all about. If, if that describes you, don't go out and get this movie. But if it doesn't describe you, you'll pick up on this right away. So let's go ahead and show the clip. Catherine, this turkey tastes half as good as it looks. I think we're all in for a very big treat. (laughs) Save the neck for me, Clark. (laughs) Okay, Eddie. I told you we put it in too early. Oh, it's just a little dry. It's fine. So it looked perfect on the outside, didn't it? I mean, wasn't your mouth just watering as they were getting ready to cut that turkey open? And yet what was just inside was totally different than what they were expecting. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be that turkey, right? And this is a reminder to you, we're, we're inside of a month from Thanksgiving tomorrow, and uh, don't put the turkey in too early. But it doesn't matter how good it looks on the outside, if what's on the inside is not what you need, is not what we're after. In fact, Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 23. He was speaking to the Pharisees, and he refers to them as white-washed Tombs. Do you want Jesus to refer to you as whitewashed tombs? I'm always doing this. I clip my Bible and then I end up covering up the scripture that I need. So hold on for just a second. You can turn there if you want to, but it's on the screen behind me. But he says in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, he calls out to them and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we don't just look good on the outside, that we don't just put on the mask and pretend that everything is fine, but that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is transforming us from the inside out. And so then he goes from this passage in Matthew 5, we've talked about verse 20, our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. He gives several examples of that in regards to anger, in regards to lust, in regards to pride, in regards to oaths and, and verbal manipulation. And then in chapter 6, he, he even continues this theme. And we're not going to focus on chapter 6 here because we'd be here all afternoon, but he's basically talking about some of these spiritual practices which are very wise for us to participate in. But if we do them for the wrong reasons, they are fruitless. And so he talks about giving, he talks about praying, he talks about fasting, and he gives examples. He says, don't do it out on the street corners to be seen by men. Go into your closet and give in secret, pray in secret, fast in secret, where your heavenly Father sees, and you will receive your reward. You'll receive that right standing with God that you desire, and you'll receive that reconnection with God that you desire. But if you do it out in the public square to be seen and recognized by other people, then you're not going to get what you really desire, which is 
the vertical relationship, you might get the admiration of people uh, that are around you. Then he moves on and he talks about treasures on earth versus treasure in heaven. And if we are seeking the external, we'll have some treasures on earth. But if we're seeking the internal and to have right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we will have treasures in heaven. And we will do our good deeds as a response to his grace instead of trying to earn his grace, and we will have treasures in heaven. And then he moves on to worry. It's all stitches together. It all makes sense, and it's in a logical order. He says, if you are right in heaven, if you have treasures in heaven, if you have right standing with God, you have nothing to worry about. So that's chapter 6 in 60 seconds or less. I want to spend the rest of our time in chapter 7, which really focuses in on the destructiveness of self-righteousness, on one of the main ways that we practice self-righteousness. That's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And I threw chapter, verse 12 on there as well. Verse 12 will make a lot of sense. So uh, when we get there, uh, you'll see why I threw that on. It's on page 1505 in your, in your blue hardcover pew Bibles. And here's what he says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in everything, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The whole law, the whole Old Testament summed up in this one command. We've called it the golden rule. Christ is saying, do to others as you would have them do to you. And he prefaces it with a so in everything. Some translations of scripture say therefore in everything or therefore do to others as you would have them do to you. And he's basically saying in light of all this, in light of this Sermon on the Mount, in light of the specific teaching in John chapter 7 about judgment and condemnation, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you like to be judged and condemned by other people? Raise your hand. So she's just scratching her ear. She doesn't really want to be judged and condemned. In case you were looking, I was okay, I'll go see her after service. Because when we're talking about judging and condemning, we're talking about casting the verdict, putting ourselves in the place of judge and jury to determine the fate of another. And we don't enjoy when other people do that, especially when they have no right or no reason to be speaking into our lives to do that. And on the flip side, you can ask yourself, no, yeah, I don't really care for that. But on the flip side, you can ask yourself, whose sin bothers me more? Is it my sin that bothers me more or is it your sin that bothers me more? Am I more eager to see my life cleaned up or the lives of everybody else cleaned up? And that will give us a good insight into how we're doing with self-righteous religion. Who are you the most, most desperate to see change, yourself or someone else? Because these, these five verses at the beginning of chapter 7 are really at the heart of, of self-righteous religion. This is the heart of 
this as we judge and condemn one another. Because I have found in my own life, and maybe this is just me, but I I tend to think it's a little more universal than that. We tend to judge others by their actions, which we can see, and ourselves by our intentions. Well, I I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't mean for it to go that way. And we extend ourselves a lot of grace, and we tend to judge others by their actions, and even worse, our interpretation of their actions. The story our ego tells us about why they didn't wave at us or why they didn't look at us with a happy smile or why they didn't say you're welcome when we said thank you or, or whatever else the little chatterbox in here has to say. We tend to judge others by our interpretation of their actions rather than judging ourselves by our intentions. We do this in our marriage. We do this at our workplace. We do this in the checkout line at Walmart. We do this on the road when we get a little excited and shake our fist at somebody or whatever else the case may be. This is what's going on when we get angry and say that somebody else has done something wrong and we cast the verdict. And so let's go back and work through verses 1 and 2 where he talks about do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's talking about condemning. He's talking about casting a verdict. He's talking about sentencing someone else. And so the first step in all of this is that we must seek to become the kind of person that does not condemn or blame others reflexively. We become the kind of person who does not condemn or blame others reflexively. That does not complain and point out the, with criticizing the other people around us, but we look inward and we seek to move inside rather than blaming or condemning others as a matter of habit. And one of the reasons that this makes sense is Henry Cloud talks about, he says, when there's someone to blame, there's nothing to learn. Once you have found someone to blame for what is wrong in your life, then there is very little for you to learn at that point because you have externalized your problem onto another person. And in some cases, it is their fault. In cases of abuse, in cases of neglect, in those types of things. But so many times I sit across the table from married couples that are struggling and they've got a whole list of things that they can blame on the other person that are the problems. Or maybe you've got people that you work with and you have blamed all the issues in your little team or your little unit on somebody else. Or you've blamed a parent or you've blamed a sibling or you've blamed somebody and you have cast the verdict that the issue is their fault. And once you do that, there's nothing left for you to learn. You haven't owned your piece of it, so you can't learn from it, and you'll probably repeat the same things over and over again. In fact, I said in a conversation recently, I said it's like blame is the parking lot for growth. So you can sit in the parking lot and blame people all you want, or you can go inside and start growing. You can go in and face the problems, face the issues, and grow. And we have to realize that condemnation and blame are really left to God. He did not ask us to take up this mantle of blaming and condemning the people around us. He asked us to trust him with those things, to trust that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and leave blame and leave condemnation to God. Because if we don't, we'll get the idea that as long as I'm condemning the right things in other people, or as long as I'm blaming the right people, then I'm okay. So as long as I condemn the right things in other people, then I'll be all right. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. In fact, Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion, beating them with a rope. 
but I cannot trust myself to do so. I can't trust myself to cast judgment. I can't trust myself to sentence another person. I, I can interpret the situation. I can be wise and take a step back from dangerous people. I can pray and ask God to give me wisdom, give me grace, pray for the grace to forgive. I can pray for the grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But I don't get to go around saying, oh, yep, that's a bad one. I can condemn them. I can safely sentence them because what they have done is so horrible or so clearly wrong. And he expands upon this in verse 2. He expands upon that phrase, or you too will be judged. And he basically makes it clear that judgment almost never brings about the desired change. When have you been condemned by someone unfairly and it suddenly motivated you to change your behavior? It doesn't. And it almost always brings a counterattack. So when we go on the offensive and we condemn somebody else or we judge somebody else, we usually get what we just gave. And that's what he's saying. In the same manner that you use, you will receive it back. So he's basically saying, stop it. Stop it. It's not working. It's not working when you do it. It's not working when they do it to you. Don't offer the volley. Don't offer the counter attack when you're on the receiving end of it. And I see this no more... Nowhere more clearly than on social media. And we live with this idea that if we just post the perfect post about our political ideology, it will change the world and everybody will fall in line with us. And it doesn't work. It drives them farther away and they counterattack. And we see this going back and forth down in the comments section or we see this in interpersonal relationships. If I can lay enough blame on my spouse or on my kids or on my coworkers, then I can push all the, the, the blame onto them, and it just comes back to us from them. It doesn't work. He's, he's making this a very common sense approach. It doesn't work. It's not helping. And in verse 3 through 5, he points out, or he shows us, that he understands condemnation better than we do, okay? So he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And I I'm freaky about my eyes. I can't wear contacts. I've tried several different times. So this has always really bothered me. Because even a speck of sawdust in my eye feels like a plank. Right? And so the audacity in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, we have to come to the place where we understand that condemnation and a condemning attitude is the plank in our eye. It's not that we are sinning worse in that area than the person that we're trying to correct. It's that we have the wrong heart. We have the wrong motive from the beginning. That Listen to what Dallas Willard says on this passage. It says, condemnation is the board in your eye. Jesus knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart does not have the kingdom rightness he has been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-righteousness, blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother, and we will never know how to truly help him until we have grown into the kind of person who does not condemn, period. 
Getting the board out is not a matter of correcting something that is wrong in our life so that we will be able to condemn our dear ones better or more effectively, so to speak. So I hope that this is resonating because it's really showing this condemnation and this blame as a tool of the enemy, not a tool of God. It's a tool of the enemy, not a tool of the Holy Spirit to judge and condemn with anger and contempt towards other people. In fact, Paul approaches the subject this way. In Romans 14.4, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he rises or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We forget that every single person you lock eyes with, every single person that you interact with is a servant of the Most High God. Whether they have realized it or not at this point, they belong to him, not to you. And when we go around condemning and judging another person's servant, we are taking the place of God in that person's life. And he even goes so far as to say, God's going to make them stand. God's going to bring them to the awareness of grace. And he's not going to do it through your judgment and condemnation. He'll do it through your love. He'll do it through your forgiveness. He'll do it through your grace. So we can get on the same team as God, or we can try to take the place of God. And I think it's important to understand that we are not talking about suspending all forms of evaluation or discernment. We're talking about getting rid of the condemnation, getting rid of, of the anger, getting rid of the blame that, that excludes, that sentences another person or that assumes that they are completely wrong and unredeemable just because of something that they have done. Instead of a loving, prayerful, restoration-oriented diagnosis and appraisal, that's very, very different than judgment and condemnation. And God may call you, if you have children or if you have somebody that you're very close with and in fellowship with, to lovingly and prayerfully confront in order to help a person. That's very, very different than condemnation. That's very, very different than assigning blame and casting a sentence or a verdict on another person. In fact, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23, just a little later in this chapter, is all about being wise as as serpents and innocent as doves. It's all about inspecting the fruit of another or inspecting the fruit of a teacher so that we don't get led astray. So it's not saying, oh, you know, we just can't ever make a decision about anybody or anything. It's not that at all. But it is removing condemnation, getting condemnation out because condemnation is rooted in this self-righteousness. And so I want to invite you to imagine a world that was completely devoid of self-righteous condemnation, of religious blame, of self-righteousness in all of its various forms. Imagine a world without any of that. Imagine a world where there weren't people going around casting verdicts on each other. Because that's the world that we've been invited to. It's the world that, that Jesus envisions for us, where we are so concerned for one another out of love and out of grace and out of true right standing with God. We're so secure in our righteousness, our right standing with God on the basis of Christ that we don't have any need to condemn another person in order to temporarily elevate ourselves. See, in the kingdom of heaven, such condemnation becomes irrelevant. You don't have to receive it from other people, and you certainly don't have to retaliate, and you don't have to extend it to other people and experience their retaliation. Because in the kingdom of heaven, 
There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. And so if you are on the receiving end of somebody else's condemnation, you can say, who is the one that is condemning me? And who is the one who does not condemn me? Do I need to receive this? Do I need to retaliate against this? No, I don't. I can let it go. I can let it go. Fall is a beautiful reminder from the trees of how beautiful it is to let it go. We see the leaves falling down. We see the beauty of just letting some things go. We don't have to respond. We don't have to retaliate. But at the same time, we we do need to receive loving correction. We do need to receive when somebody who genuinely cares about us and has our best interest in mind comes to us with loving correction, we need to be the kind of people who can receive that. And if there is a root of self-righteousness, if there is a root of pride, then we will not be able to. And so Jesus is casting a vision for a world without condemnation, a world without self-righteousness, a world where the Spirit leads us into being the kind of people who never want to condemn anyone, who only want to grow, only want to bless, only want to help, only want to forgive, only want to extend grace as we move towards holiness, as we move towards Christ-likeness, and we reject our self-righteousness that puts us in a place that would put someone and sentence them and cast a verdict in their, in their favor. And so there is a perfect example of this in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll wrap up there. And it becomes a perfect illustration of just what we're talking about and the contrast between the two approaches. It's on chapter 18, of Luke's gospel. And I would encourage you to turn there if, if you would like to read along or you can just listen to me. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He's kind of pointing to his works, his spiritual exercises. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, went home in right standing with God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I have stood and prayed Pharisee prayers. Before I became a pastor, since I became a pastor, I have gotten fed up with complaints or with this or with that or with Christians treating each other badly, and I have cast the verdict. I am a recovering Pharisee. I think we all are, if we're honest about it. But I have also prayed the tax collector prayer. 
And I guarantee you, you walk away from the second type of prayer, the humble prayer, the prayer that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner apart from grace. I am completely without resource. I have no righteousness except Christ's righteousness, which has been placed upon me by his grace and his love. You walk away in right standing with God from the second type of prayer, not from the first. The world out there needs to be interacting with Christians who are routinely praying the second type of prayer, not the first who are routinely interacting with a lost and broken world, a world that is fallen. And they're seeing love, and they're seeing grace, and they're seeing forgiveness. They're not seeing counterattacks. They're not seeing condemnation. They're not seeing battles back and forth. They're seeing Christ walking around in his people. And so I encourage you, as always, to respond in faith to this message. The bottom line today is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's right out of Scripture, the second half of verse 14. And our series, Selfless, is focusing on the self. And if you look at this in just slightly different presentation, you see whoever humbles himself or herself will be exalted. But whoever exalts himself or herself, our ego, our flesh, when we exalt that, we're going to be humbled. But when we humble that, when we push that to the side and allow space for God to work in and through our lives, then he exalts us and our true self rises through all the false and all the flesh and all the ego and all the sin nature and our true self, the self that is Christ in us, the hope of glory emerges and it's beautiful. And the world wants what we have when we get out of the way and he emerges. So I encourage you, respond in faith. Come and pray. Pray where you're seated. Intercede on behalf of someone. Ask God, is this for me? Because if we're not careful, we hear a message like this and we think of other people. Yeah, I really wish they were here. Really, they needed to hear this. And if that thought has crossed your mind, then I would encourage you to take a look in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, even when it is challenging, even when it is difficult, even when it doesn't tell us what we want to hear, but pokes at places in us that desperately need your touch. Lord, make us a people who reflect your glory, who reflect your beauty, who extend your love and your grace and your peace to those closest to us and those farthest from us, that we are equal opportunity dispensers of your grace, that we are so filled with it that it flows through us into the world around us. Help us, O God, to be consumed and transformed by your love from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray.